0: Chapter 9 of the Story of Avis. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Elizabeth Clett. The Story of Avis by Elizabeth Stuart Phelps. Chapter 9. What's death? You'll love me yet. Browning. Loved for we did, and like the elements that know not what nor why. Two noble kinsmen. Now and then a feature, an attitude, an accent, gets a mathematical hold of our imaginations, as far removed as is possible from the aesthetic or magnetic way, yet more imperious than either, like the pattern of the wall-paper in the room which has known some tragedy or ecstasy of our lives. We sit enchained by a trick of speech in the man we hate, or the cut of the brow in the creature we despise, or the shadow under the lip of the stranger we neither expect nor care to meet again or the glance of the friend in whose broken faith eternity could not tempt us to confide. These things happen, as the comets march and countermarch, by laws deeper than, though apparently subservient to, caprice. Something of this sort occurred to Philip Ostrander as he lay through the long September days in Stratford Allen's luxurious guest-room, wooing, more slowly than might have been expected of his youth and health, an escaping soul to remain in a mutilated body he had been very near death of this though no one had told him so he was fully aware he had enlisted in a reckless temper like who can count how many other young men to whom the war offered the quickest and most incisive road to a glorious solution of inglorious personal difficulties Ostrander had the refracting not the absorbing nature in which ambition kindles under emotion like the maple leaf whose heart the autumn seeks earliest and earliest deserts a keen passion like vanity a strong one like love or a subtle one like that of immediate personal sway transfigure the resolve of such a nature only so long as they may focus upon it He would have felt himself humiliated to own to another man how impossible he had found it to dedicate to a science of which he believed himself to be enthusiastically appreciative, the life which a woman's foot had bruised. Yet he felt no more degradation in admitting this to himself than he did at admitting the beating of his heart. Perhaps we may say he made as little resistance to it. The position reserved for him in Harmouth College ceased to possess those elements of attraction which he considered conditions of success for himself in anything, as soon as he found himself compelled to undertake it in teeth of the precise experience, awaiting the man who has to adjust the hunger of a strong nature to the famine of a denied love. This, as he assumed, was the fault of his temperament. He yielded to it as he would to a distaste for a poem or a pie. The world was wide. A Harmouth professorship was not an undue part of it. One man would answer about as well as another to fill any mould, unless, perhaps, the chalices of life, and it could hardly be said that the veins of his nature throbbed with sacramental wine, only a serviceable, secular brand. It was indeed, he thought, indicative of a narrow, if not an arrogant fancy, to suppose that it made much difference, in the end, who undertook any given little portion of the work of his age. These youthful enthusiasms were interchangeable. If he were shot, there would be one indifferent geologist less in the world, possibly one grieving woman more. He had moments in which he had dared believe that she would mourn for him. He found these inexpressibly and mystically sweet. Regret in a nature like hers might easily turn into tenderness, when her beautiful, fierce maidenhood was forever safe from its encroachment. Death would not be a costly price to pay for that subtle and constraining mastery of her soul, which repentant grief and virgin widowhood would give him. Nay, the barren chance of this seemed worth far bitterer than a soldier's fate. There would be a few robust physical pangs, more or less, perhaps the inevitable homesickness to be expected at first from entering an unknown life, the relief consequent upon leaving one, with which he was at present, thoroughly dissatisfied than the wide spaces and free chances of a spiritual economy in which to make his nature worthy of approach to hers, as by an instinct deeper than the reverent humility of newly awakened love, he felt that it was not likely to become in the conditions of this. For Ostrander believed in another life. Fifteen years ago an educated young man did not find it absolutely imperative to doubt the immortality of his own soul. He had, therefore, for it was thus that he loved this woman, with all the strength and the weakness, with the heights and the depths of his nature, gone into the army, moved by a profound and intelligent hope that he might never come out of it. When, however, the shot struck, he had grappled with death as manfully as most life-sick young creatures do if given the chance, for as he fell his major's horse toppled over on him. It was the struggle consequent on the effort to free himself from so hideous a death rather than the wound not in itself deadly—which had made the nature of his peril. The pierced lung was badly bruised. Through the sultry days and cooling nights in which the first breath of autumn crept, his mind had stirred sluggishly towards the positions in which death had met it. His medical training told him that this was his most hopeful symptom, and one to be fostered. He yielded himself peacefully to the little eddies of a sick-room existence. He would have been glad to forget that the whole round world was not bounded by the daintily decorated, scented, and soothing spot in which his recovery met him. He would have been glad to forget that there was any other woman in the world than this excellent sister of a good fellow, whose kingly hospitality was likely to save his life. He experienced a peculiar sense of relief in the presence of a simple feminine nature lending itself to these delicate cares with which he felt himself surrounded unobtrusively, as he was with the pale, cool, pearl-tint of the walls, the select engravings, the luxurious knick-knacks of the toilet or the medicine-table, the exquisite service of his breakfast, or the pattern of ferns on the lace, to which the Venetian blinds lent a suffusive woodland tint. Awaking one morning, several days after his return to Harmouth, from the state of semi-conscious exhaustion into which the hot journey had thrown him, he had been made aware of a distinct and new sensation of optical pleasure. For the first time he perceived within the hazy lighting and shading of the room a soft outline upon which his eye wandered, rested, and remained, with the wide, blind impulse of a baby's on a sunbeam. It was the outline of a woman's neck it was a delicate neck, of not too muscular nor yet too full a curve, of the sensitive fairness which accompanies umber tints in the hair, eyes, and brow. The hair was brushed well up from it, lingering reluctantly in little rings, of which it was difficult to express the images of endearment that they presented involuntarily to the mind, as it is difficult to explain those which we receive from tendrils or from the shadow of tendrils upon a ripe leaf. Thrown high over a comb, two or three curls fell, leaning lightly and yielding with an almost imperceptible stir to the motions of the wearer's breath. The sick man's fancy had from that time found itself curiously, but not ungratefully, subject to the outline of those curls, pursuing it idly in his weakest hours, with interest in his stronger ones, tracing the exact course of a lock that defied him like the pattern of an old lace watching for the resumption of certain broad lights or warm shadows that he saw yesterday—disappointed if they did not reappear—nervously fretful sometimes if he could not understand why, when she turned her head, one curl would fall and another only nestle closer to its place—busy now and then in putting them into imaginary order upon his finger. He once heard a celebrated beauty say, that if she could possess but one physical attraction, it should be that of pliant and abundant hair. "'Miss Barbara,' he had said one day, "'do you ever arrange your hair in any other way?' "'Do you not like it?' she answered, turning her neck slowly. She generally sat with her profile towards him. "'Amazingly.' "'Does it have a nervous effect on you in any way—to see the curls fly, I mean? I can change it if it annoys you.' "'It does not annoy me in the least. But I should like to see it changed—for once.' he demanded, in the idly autocratic tone of the spoiled convalescent. "'Certainly,' said Barbara, "'I will do it up plainly some day if you wish. I will try and remember it.' But she never did, it chanced, remember it. Certainly there never was a better nurse than Barbara Allen, soft of step and quiet of dress, sure of the right word at the right time, yet mistress of long silences never taxing a weak and wearied attention with chatter about her china, yet capable of bringing the English breakfast-tea in a lotus-leaf and the ice-water in a pond-lily, competent to adjust the colour of the doily to the prevailing tint of one's supper, throwing an atmosphere of domestic frankness about a homeless man when her brother was in the room, just brushed in his absence by a poised reserve, perceptive of the precise moment when speech is a strain, and silence an oppression, and a song of Schubert's, touched in the twilight, should stir like a spirit through the quiet house, full of those delicate and pictorial resources of which returning strength is least likely to become ungratefully critical. "'You have been so kind to me,' said Ostrander, the day that he took his first step into the cool hall, and she drew out the white linen ottoman for him from the direct draught, and took the cricket at his feet, there being no other seat there for her. "'So kind! that it seems a sort of rudeness or affectation for me to express a gratitude that must only deepen with time.' "'Stratford and I are so glad,' said Barbara warmly. "'It is the only visible way we have open to us of doing our little share for the men who are imperilling their lives for us. The obligation is all on our side, Mr. Ostrander. And you have been such a delightfully romantic invalid. It has been like having a poem or a story alive in one's own house. How do you think we are going to get along on plain prose when you are gone? "'Shall you miss me?' asked Ostrander, leaning back upon the white ottoman, and watching her dreamily. It was a graceful pose she had upon the cricket, and the low wind was busy with her hair. Barbara lifted her brown eyes, but they fell and she said nothing. She was content to be watched like that. Why spoil an innocent pleasure by talking? "'So much?' continued Ostrander in a lower tone, clasping his hands behind his head, and bringing his lips together under his bright beard. "'I don't know, but it is worth a man's being shot to be first cured and then missed, so.'" Now, as Ostrander could have never sat with downcast eyes listening to his own voice, its effect could hardly have been a measurable thing with him. And then he was very grateful, and at that moment he was filled with the tender flood of returning life, and Barbara happened to be there. Tea, to which for the first time Ostrander staggered down, was late that night. Barbara always waited tea for her brother. Stratford Allen, who had failed to develop that naturally superior manner to be expected of the business man who is known to have endowed a university, came in with perhaps an unwonted touch of his habitual modest, sad reserve. When Barbara asked him why he was so late, he said he had been at the treasurer's office. "'Did you ask Professor Doble about those German books for his department?' asked Barbara. "'Yes, I stopped at his house a moment,' said her brother, coming up to give his cordial hand to Ostrander. "'I think you'd better run over there to-morrow, Barbara. Miss Avis has got hurt rowing.' "'Oh, much hurt. Mr. Ostrander, not in the draft, please. Take this chair.' "'Nothing serious, I hope, but a troublesome bruise. She was pulling her boat in through a heavy sea and brought her thumb between the rock and the bows somehow. She made light of it, but it will cripple her for a while, I am afraid. Ostrander, how pleasant this is! Shall I help you to the very last huckleberry that was to be found in New England?" After tea Ostrander said that he wished to try a step or two upon the piazza. Stratford objected, but Barbara said it was her rule that sick people—of anything beyond a common schooled education—should be allowed to do as they liked. She came up to him with a rosebud in one hand and his overcoat in another—his winter coat. Barbara's lightest sentiment had a sufficiently practical ballast. She pinned in the rose a plump, hothouse bud of a sturdy color. One long, sinuous curl fell over it. Ostrander drew his furred lapel over the flower with an exquisite motion which an artist or novelist would not have wasted upon anything less than a Madonna lily. With his peculiar tenderness of touch, and with his eyes fixed upon her, he folded it slowly against his heart. "'As if it had been—a woman,' thought Barbara, with a discreet vagueness of imagination, Barbara had a high respect for a man who could receive a favor of hers with grace so princely. But she did not wish that she were that rose. Ostrander, still touching his coat with a certain gentleness, crept out into the rapidly chilling air. He had come out to try his strength. He meant to know for himself about that hurt hand. He crawled along with a suppressed fierceness when he found how weak he was. The fat rosebud slipped and fell. He did not see it and stepped on it twice in crossing the piazza floor. It was impossible to have better intentions than Aunt Chloe's when any member of the family was by illness or otherwise thrown defenselessly upon them. When Avis had been for three days incapacitated for work by her little accident, Aunt Chloe resolutely took her sewing and went to find her. It was nonsense to be moping out there like a chilled blue-jay. Avis must be entertained. The first condition of recovery, were it from a broken thumb or a broken head, Aunt Chloe held, was to be got out of one's self. And in the nature of things we find those people to be self-absorbed who are not occupied in our own particular forms of benevolence, precisely as we find those irreligious who are not of our own especial faith. The main trouble with Avis, Aunt Chloe reasoned, was that she did not go out of herself. What if she could not paint for a week or two? A soldier's box could be packed, at all events a harmouth soup-ticket could be distributed with any energetic left hand. It may be that Aunt Chloe's stout impulse, like that of many another outflowing heart, sometimes struck nearer to a truth than the richer but less objective fancy. But Avis, in the orchard, flung upon the short September grass with her ruskin and Hawthorne and Mrs. Jameson, and other resources not so immediately telling upon the needs of the age as the soup-tickets responded to Aunt Chloe's sympathy with the assurance that she was not in pain, and fully occupied, and hoped to be at work again in, at most, a fortnight. "'I hope so, my dear, I'm sure,' said Aunt Chloe, laboriously seating herself beside her, and unrolling a package of metaphysical shirts. "'For it must be very lonely, having so few resources as you do. I came out because I thought it bad for you to be so much alone.' "'Thank you, Auntie," said Avis, in a sincere tone, closing her book how odd all this is about mr ostrander and barbara began aunt chloe carefully fitting a gusset why was it that it always made avis frantic to see aunt chloe fit gussets it is the last thing i should have thought of should you have thought of it perhaps not said avis but it is very natural i hope for her sake it will prove a bona fide engagement buzzed aunt chloe it will be so awkward for her otherwise though it isn't a choice I should have made for Mr. Ostrander. I sent him some nasturtiums this morning. Avis, let me see that hand once more. I don't understand why you should look so fagged out over it." "'A little hurt sometimes causes a good deal of pain,' said Avis, rather wearily. She threw herself back upon the brown grass and closed her eyes while Aunt Chloe talked. It irked her, this enforced idleness, more than she could remember to have been irked by anything since she sat cutting out night-clothes with Aunt Chloe on the dining-room table at sixteen. Just now it seemed as imperative to be busy as action to the swimmer, and her efforts to exchange her palette for her books had been purposeless and spasmodic, like the motions of the sinking. She seldom read while she was at work, and could recall many a sketch which had been ruined by the morning paper. She could not set the fire of creation to boiling the tea-kettle of acquisition. Especially had this experience proved untimely and unmerciful. There seemed to be great spaces in her nature into which she neither cared nor dared to look, and which the events of the summer had imperceptibly enlarged, like the boundaries of a conquering country. She found herself now with a kind of terror thrust into them against her will. "'My dear,' said Aunt Chloe with unwonted abruptness, folding the gusset, however, before she laid it down, I don't know but there is a providence in this accident after all. I have been troubled about you for a long time. It is always a pity for a woman to become dependent upon any excitement outside of the sphere to which she must, of course, in the end adjust herself. And really, Avis, I don't see how you are going to marry in that studio. I do not wish to speak of such matters with any indelicate freedom," added Aunt Chloe, with her old-fashioned womanly reserve, which Avis in all her life never remembered to have seen broken in this way before. "'But of course, my dear, you will expect to marry.' "'No,' said Avis gently, with the perfectly hopeless feeling one has under the necessity of an explanation which kindliness demands, but which is sure to be only a deepening mystery to the auditor. "'No, auntie, I do not expect to marry.' "'In a certain way,' replied Aunt Chloe, with grave hesitation, "'that is the way a woman should feel. I had refused your uncle twice before I thought of marriage. I am glad you preserve so much modesty about such matters. Young girls nowadays are generally so different. Of course no lady will ever allow herself to become interested in a gentleman till he has positively sought her in marriage. Aunt Chloe rolled up her work as she uttered this first and great commandment, upon which all the law and profits of womanhood hung, with the serene dignity which only an absolute inability to conceive of two sides to a question can give. What a lady ought not, that, of course, a lady never did, it was scarcely necessary to remind any niece of hers of that. But Aunt Chloe had almost a sense of immodesty in having spoken, as she had felt it her duty to do, to Avis. Marriage was not a thing for women to chatter about. But equally it was not the thing for women deliberately to put themselves beyond the reach of that honourable institution which we must admit was ordained of Almighty God and necessary to weak-minded man and when a poor motherless girl had reached the age of twenty-six without any apparent appreciation of this fact it was clearly the duty of somebody to remind her with that delicacy belonging to the old-time breeding of the mistaken and undesirable position into which she was drifting not said aunt chloe hastening to a virtuous qualification of her unwonted indiscretion not that a maiden lady cannot live a very useful and unselfish life my dear i have known many instances But I think you, Avis, would be happier in the married state, and so I thought I would take an opportunity to caution you a little. You seem to be so absorbed in that painting that somebody must think for you. And now Coy has gone and Barbara will follow, you will be left very much alone. I cannot deny that I feel some anxiety for your future." "'Thank you, Auntie," said Avis again. A dull sense of disturbance mingled with her surprise at Aunt Chloe's unprecedented expression of feeling. She was glad when the last gusset was rolled away, and Julia called to ask if she should scald over the marmalade. She wandered away restlessly when Aunt Chloe had gone, through the orchard, over the meadow, across the field. She crushed the crisp grass idly. The brown butterflies circled over her head, and the grasshoppers rose and fell in their short autumn riot, which lends almost a pathos to a creature that is alternately repulsive and absurd, as the throb of any ephemeral life must do in its last delight. Avis watched them with a sudden, fierce envy. They would die of the bitter frost, but they had leapt to the summer sun. She stopped—from a feeling too ill-defined to be called a purpose, perhaps hardly conscious enough to be named an impulse—at the spot where she had last seen and spoken with Philip Ostrander. It was broad, white September noon. The narrow shadow crept crouching against the feet of the stone wall. The direct touch of the sun fell gratefully for the morning had been chill. There was a rising but as yet unagitated wind, which appealed to but did not stir the purple heart of the sea morning-glories that sprang from the sand across the wall. The water had the superlative and unmated meaning of a September sea. The near waves broke weedless and kindling, clean to the heart's core, like a nature burnt wholly with a consecrated passion. All the colors of the tide and of the shore compelled attention, as if one must create a vocabulary to express them, as if one struggled to say, A blazing brown, a joyous gray, a restless green, a reticent red, a something never seen before—in every tint there was a subtle contradiction. The life and death of the year wrestled upon the face of the water— The whole harbour looked to Avis like some large soul, in which a conflict old as time, and young as hope, and eternal as nature, and sad as fate, was impending. By and by the harbour too must freeze. A pace or two down the wall two little stunted spruces grew—sparse, wind-beaten things, shivering away from the sea with the touching action of all trees upon an easterly shore. Avis, stepping along to help herself up by the assistance of their shrinking branches, climbed the stone wall, and stood for a moment between them, looking across the cliff and down. In her full, lithe length there, a perfect panel against the sky and sea, she was still standing, when she heard her name spoken under breath, and immediately the speaker added, Do not move, I pray you. Do not even turn your head just this moment. Neither starting nor stirring, without comment or inquiry— she obeyed. Perhaps her breath came with some swiftness, for she seemed to sway a very little in standing. In her pale, straw-coloured summer dress she looked like a delicate flame, slender and ascending against the sky. Still, without turning, she gently said, "'That is long enough, I think, Mr. Ostrander.' "'Is it? Are you tired?' "'Ah, well, I am selfish. I would have kept you there much longer. "'Well, then, if you must.' Shall I help you down?" Then she turned. Slowly like a statue on its pivot she circled towards him between the dark lines of the two trees, and slowly opened her grave eyes upon his face. Perhaps she was not thinking that he would be so sorely changed. It was so long since she had seen him. Silence had been heavy between them, and the shadow of death had overhung. In all the strain of this summer she had thrust herself back upon her own quiveringly poised imagination a terrible companion upon the battlefield, beneath the shot within the blazing hospital upon the scorching journey and at the door of death she had followed him as one follows afar off exchanging the terror of that which is for the horror of that which may be her mind had not been at any time laggard in its apprehension of the fact that he lay at a stone's throw from her grappling with life and that another woman rendered him the tender offices of friendship and of compassion But her pictorial instinct, cruelly loyal to her thus far, had failed her at last. This face, this, which he lifted to her now, haggard and grey, tense with that enforced patience, so foreign to a man, that a woman instinctively gauges the extent of his physical suffering by his acquisition of it, against this her saddest vision had not fortified her. Astronomy happened upon a beautiful and significant phrase when it gave us energy of position, and meant us to understand by it that certain separated bodies are far apart, with great spaces to travel to reach each other. At that one moment the energy of position between these two seemed an immeasurable thing. Avis, perhaps because she had just obeyed him in standing still to be looked at, had turned a little coldly. Where she stood high upon the wall, her health and youth and colour seemed to cut themselves like articulate words before his eyes he upon the side of the ascending field crawled weakly towards her he was shattered as a broken column for that moment they looked steadily and silently upon one another then slowly furtively as an unacknowledged motive or a rebel fancy there crept over her face a change it was the marvellous and magnificent change wrought upon a woman's face only by that compassion which steals a regent to the palace where love the king has been dethroned nothing is more beautiful—because nothing is more womanly—than that subsistence of the muscles, that quiver of the nerves, that kindling of color, and luminous entreaty of the eye." The young man held his breath before it, stirred with a perfectly new and daring hope. He felt that, had he come to her again in the power of his manhood, he might again have gone as he came. It was his physical ruin and helplessness which appealed to the strength in her. He would have died to see that lip of hers tremble so, for him. Now he saw it, and lived. He had exchanged nothing but a shot long and lifelong feebleness for heaven. He drew a weak step nearer to her, and held out his arms. She wavered for an instant. The morning glory behind her, across the wall, wavered as much in the now rising wind. Then with a low, inarticulate cry she stretched both hands down towards him. He took them and she slid down from the wall and stood beside him. She did not offer to remove her hands. He thought she was unconscious of his touch, for she had not yet taken that broken, piteous look from his face. "'Oh,' she said indistinctly, "'I did not think—I did not know.' "'You did not know I was so changed.' He gently took her hurt right hand by the wrist as he spoke, holding it like a drooping water-lily by the stem. "'There—I must have hurt you.' I was cruel but I was dazzled. Poor little hand! There is a great deal of suffering in a little hurt like this. A bruise is so much worse than a cut—in hearts or hands. I have had the cut. You have almost drawn the life-blood out of my soul, I think. But you—you have been bruised." A wild flash of dissent or protest shot across her eyes, but the quiver of her lip increased. All this time! He went on in the pathetic accent which mortal illness leaves lingering so long upon a man's voice. "'You have sent me no word, no sign.' She silently shook her head. Her eyelids looked heavily, as if a distinct effort only prevented them from drooping. "'You never expressed to me the commonest sympathies of friendship.' "'Imperfectly,' she said, "'No. "'I lay, pretty weak, watching, day after day, thinking perhaps you would come or speak one little word—' I went down into the valley of the shadow of death without you. You never extended a finger-touch to help me. I never did. You did not dare. Then her eyelids fell. Then her quivering lip melted. Then her whole face broke and blazed. She snatched away both hands and covered it. Let me hear you say it, he demanded with a kind of solemn authority, which seemed for the moment to be that of one who dealt with a divine, not human, passion. You dared not." "'I dared not.' "'Let me know why not.' "'Because you did not—ask me to.' Scarlet behind her shielding hands she flung out the words. He took one blind step towards her. "'If I had asked you, would you have come? Did you care—did you want to come—when I was suffering to me?' "'Oh, every day—every hour—' there was not a minute, for so many cruel weeks. It was so hard. Oh, don't think I am crying. It's only that I cannot get my breath. And I couldn't go. I was afraid. "'You were afraid you loved me,' he cried. "'You are afraid of it now.' As long as he lived Ostrander saw in dreams the expression of exquisite pain with which she dragged her hands away from her face and met his eye. She seemed like a creature whose throbbing heart was torn out of her live body." "'If this be love,' she slowly said, "'I am afraid I love you now.'" He staggered. He was still so weak. He staggered, and putting out one hand upon her shoulder, sank slowly to the ground. "'Oh!' she cried, "'I have hurt you.' "'No! Oh, no! Hush! You have healed me. I am well. Only let me rest a minute till my breath comes.' He leaned, panting, against the wall, under the scant shade of the storm-tormented spruce. "'Oh, I have hurt you,' she repeated, kneeling beside him. "'What can I say? Is there anything that I can do?' She had melted into a gentleness under which he felt his head spin giddily. There was a suppressed, appealing accent in her voice which he had never heard. It was faint as the first golden outline of land to one long in mid-ocean. He put his head back and closed his eyes. He would not for life's sake just then have seen more than that mistily throbbing boundary. It was as much as he could bear. If this was her pity, what would her tenderness be? When he had grown a little stronger, he turned and silently looked at her. Already upon her rested that indefinable change, on the hither side of which, when once it has touched her, all time cannot put a woman's face. In yielding her confession, she seemed already to have yielded some impalpable portion of her personality. In the words of the old story of chivalry, her soul had gone out of her. Her blinding consciousness of having taken the first step in a road which led to some indefined but imperative surrender of her nature, had an effect upon her incalculable to one familiar only with a simpler type of woman. She did not look subdued, only startled. And, when he reverently extended his thin hand again towards her, she shrank— with widening, fear-stricken eyes. Just then Ostrander thought her beautiful terror of him more precious than her love. He did not press any expression of his feeling upon her, and they sat quite still, and the live noon pulsated about them. Presently she said tremulously, "'You are so weak—and you walked across this long field. How will you ever get back? I am troubled that you came.' "'I can go anywhere,' said Ostrander in an intoxicated tone do anything—I can go the world over, for you will go with me." He turned to her, leaning his head upon one wan hand on which the sunlight drew out the veins. She turned away. She could not just then say the word which would darken sun, moon, and stars in the face of a man who looked like that. Her own grew tense and pinched. "'But still, as you say,' said Ostrander, whether wilfully or not unconscious of this movement, I am not yet very strong. Indulge me. Let me hear you say once more—I'll not ask for it, but once today, that you are afraid you love me. Oh, I am afraid I love you. There, hush!" she sprang to her feet, putting her finger on her own lips. "'And can you not love me without being afraid?' She shook her head, her eyes beginning to wander from side to side. "'But why?' "'I do not know. I am made so,' defiantly." Let me go. Let us go now, home, somewhere. Oh, I forget. I am cruel. She broke into a penitent tenderness. Are you rested? Can you walk so far yet? Can you go? One moment. Ostrander rose feebly and stood beside her. His startling pallor burned as marble does if thrust into the full sun, as if it were lighted, not from without, but from within— He folded his arms with the resolute action of a man who thinks that is the safest thing to do with them, before he said, "'You will not leave me, I think, to-day, like this. I am almost too sick a man yet to be left, so.'" "'Do you appeal to my pity?' she flashed, drawing a step back. "'No, I appeal to your love.'" The scorching colour slowly rose, lighted, sped, fired her face, brow, and neck. When he saw it, he knew that he had never seen her blush before. She seemed to stand imprisoned by that blush, as if it had been a physical paralysis or pain. "'My love,' she said under her breath, "'my love, do you know to what you are appealing?' "'Hardly, yet,' said Ostrander deliriously. "'I am not strong enough to know to-day. I only ask that you will give me the right to know another day—to-morrow, when you will. Is it too much to ask?' She made as if she would have spoken some impetuous word, but a glance at him restrained her. He was trembling heavily, and his breath had visibly shortened. He looked very ill. Her heart leapt with the deep maternal yearning over suffering that is more elemental in women than the yearning of maiden or of wife. Had he spoken no word of that other love to her, she could have gathered his faint face in her arms, and brooded over it with leaning cheek and sobbing voice. But this other, this encroaching, appalling love which she felt in herself, as yet only as the presence of a vague organic dread—for this nature gave her no speech nor language, but the instinct of flight. Yet flight now would be either coquetry or cruelty, and of both she was incapable. "'I will see you,' she said after a moment's grave silence. "'Yes, I will see you again.' Ostrander was sensitively conscious that her transparent honesty could not wrest even from her compassion a distinct mortgage to his now blinding hope. But he felt himself as physically unequal to enduring just then any possible depression of that hope, as he was to yielding any larger allowance of the scant breath with which he must compass that widening distance across the dizzy field. He paused, however, to say with a certain authority— "'You understand what I asked in asking that we may talk of this, that we may talk of our love, again?' "'Yes.' "'And you distinctly grant that we may speak of it so?' She said, "'If you stand another moment, you cannot crawl home. I shall stand till you grant what I ask.' "'Oh, I grant it. Come, how shall I—how can I help you over this rough ground? I wish I were a man.' I am sorry not to sympathize with any wish of yours," said Ostrander, breaking into a boyish laugh as they turned, striking down into the brown stubbly field. And now, if you will permit me, just a hand upon your shoulder—it shall be a light one, and I shall get along famously. I am already stronger than I was." She lent him her strong young shoulder simply and readily, and he leaning upon it with radiant eyes, they passed over the conscious meadows in the white September noon. End of chapter 9